0: Um, this is a, probably the last time we'll have Casey Bannon here for a while. These guys lead worship every week for the kids. You guys, thank you so much for that. <laughs> obviously, if, obviously, if you needed applause, you would not pick that service to, uh, to do for the church, but still, thank you. You got me? Okay. <clears throat> Okay, so I need to institute a new practice. I did, had my pastoral review this week, and one of the things that I need to work on, now I won't put parentheses around it, I do need to work on, is diction and speed. I talk too fast, and I don't even say whole words sometimes. So, <laughs> if I am doing that, just do this. Okay? You all have the right to do it now. It used to just be my wife's sign. Now it belongs to everybody, okay? It will make me, it will break my excitement, but. It's still probably worthwhile So um, If you're new to us We're doing a series called The Gospel Through the Bible Which we broke down into several parts This one's called The New Nation It's where God in the book of Exodus through Deuteronomy is, Is creating a new people, the Israelites For himself to show what he's like in the world And we just have been through Genesis and Exodus And we're now to the third book of the Bible Leviticus Now Leviticus was introduced to me As the book where people give up When they're trying to read through the Bible when I was when I was nine, everybody likes a nice dog picture. When I was nine, I um, I came home from a, a children's camp, and I had accepted Jesus into my heart. I didn't really know what that meant, but I knew I should read the Bible. I asked my mom, who was a nice nominal Catholic woman, agnostic, if she would get me a Bible, and she said, "Sure." So she went out to the price chopper and bought me a King James Version giant print version of the Bible, <laughs> and gave it to me. Here you go, son. It's a good parent. And so the great thing about that is, is that all the names are spelled phonetically. So there's no like—it's actually easier to read in that sense. So and I mean, so I'm nine years old reading Genesis. Right? Okay, if you don't think that's funny, you don't know what's in Genesis. <laughs> Incest. Like war, I mean, like all kinds of intrigue. You know, I get that, I was like, that's pretty exciting. And I got into Exodus, read through most of that. Cause it's mostly story, right? And then there's kind of a bunch of laws at the end. Of it, and I got into Leviticus and we were sacrificing goats and talking about mildew. And I was like, I should probably skip to another part of the Bible. Um, but later on, when I was a—I became a camp counselor there, um, one of the things that they required every staff person to do is to take a day or take an hour a day to spend with God, read the Bible, and to pray, and to, to think and journal and whatever they wanted to do with that hour. And then you had one hour free time, and then you were kids the rest of the time, and you just had to not try to kill yourself. Um, and one of the things I read—I was going through this theory where there were books of the Bible I hadn't read, and I wanted to read, make sure I had read them all at least once. So I got to Leviticus, and I read it, and honestly, I'm just going to tell you, honestly, I found it fascinating— I thought it was incredible. And, um, and I, w- I, would like, I was like, did you know this is in the Bible? And like all these like older Christians are like, yeah, that's in Leviticus. I was like, yeah, it's really interesting. And they're like, yeah, I mean, there are parts that aren't. But yeah, there are a bunch of parts that are interesting. You're right. So for the, for the next two um, preaching outings for me, I want to take us through um, Leviticus for two main themes that relate directly to the gospel. And— um, Lest you think maybe that, you know, well, what's the big deal with Leviticus? Um, Two Bible commentators—Harrison says um, this—in this book is to be found the basis of Christian faith and doctrine, and just in Leviticus. Um, Alan P. Ross, who's a commentator on Leviticus, says, It should be recognized that Leviticus is one of the most important books of the Old Testament. It not only presents the entire religious system of ancient Israel, it also lays the theological foundation for the New Testament. That's really important. It lays the theological foundation for the New Testament teaching about the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Without Leviticus, the New Testament, the crucifixion of Jesus, and how it relates to us wouldn't make any sense. Okay? And so without understanding this book pretty deeply, you cannot understand what Christianity means and what the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus means. It's completely dependent on this book— but before I get into that, I do want to say a couple things because there's a lot of things people say about um, about the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, um, and. There's a, a lot of people that don't want to believe in Jesus and don't want to believe in God attack the first five books of the Bible as a way of getting rid of the whole Bible to say, well, don't you know that in the Torah there's all these terrible commandments about slavery and women and stuff and it's just, it's morally horrific and, you know, you can't believe in that kind of thing. We're modern, we're enlightened people and so you've got to throw away that whole Bible and just, st- you know, start over. And, and my response to that is, okay, there are some things— in the first five books of the Bible That you do have to understand something about divine accommodation Of God revealing into a particular culture In a particular place In a particular time And taking them in a particular direction And, and there, is, there are issues related to that You have to talk about, no, no question But are you really sure We're doing better? Are you really sure about that? Are you really sure we are so humanly advanced That modernity has taken us so far morally That this is just this Morally embarrassing Primitive nonsense Are you sure? Because let's look at how these people were commanded to live. Just a couple verses, okay? So, for example, Leviticus 19, 14, 18. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Right? Who can't hear you if you curse them? The deaf, right? Who doesn't know who put something in front of them? The blind. Right, I mean, do you think that the dignity God gives disabled people, blind people, deaf people I don't know if you you understand this, but apart from the Jewish people There's no other people in the ancient world commanded by their God To do something so economically irresponsible as to care for disabled people Almost every culture of the ancient world just threw them away In fact, some of the religions actually allowed you to sacrifice them to your God So you wouldn't have to keep them it's, it's only this ancient law that said You can't even You can't even curse a deaf person Or do anything to put in the way Of a blind person Right You shall do no injustice in court You shall not be partial to the poor Nor defer to the great But in righteousness Shall you judge your neighbor How we doing on that one, you think You shall not go around as a slanderer Among your people you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. How do you think we're doing on slander among the people? How do you think within a nation, as we talk about each other, among us as people, how do you think we're doing on that? As modern as we are, as developed as we are, as progressive as we are. One of the most disgustingly slanderous cultures I've ever read about. Our willingness for somebody to say, like, like, well, that, like that cook lady, right? She admit, I, Okay, I was, at, I was at a black church yesterday I was one of three white people there And in my talk, I was like, I was like Should that lady got fired? All these black people were like, no, that was stupid I was like, because hopefully If I say something that's wrong You won't ostracize me or slander me You'll correct me And they said, we will Of course, you know, it was black church So they actually talked to me while I was preaching So they were like, yes, we will Yes, we will, Pastor Nick It's awesome, right And you see, that's what you're supposed to do you're supposed to talk to people And you're supposed to talk to the people you have a problem with You don't go around among your people That is the nation in this context And slander them But that's all we sell on TV That's all we sell Virtually every news channel Should have a rating of about zero In relationship to Christians Is it that primitive? Right? You could, you could, there's a lot more here, right? You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. How are you doing on that one? Right? Well, Nick, I I thought just the New Testament was about the heart. I mean, the Old Testament is just about external commands and rites and rituals, right? Well, maybe not. And maybe that God has been the same yesterday, today, and forever. Maybe he's always cared about the heart, specifically in relationship to hatred. And maybe he commanded at the very beginning of his people that you are not to hate your brother. In this case, this is not your biological brother. He's talking to the whole nation of Israel. This, if he was saying this to us, to would be like, you shall not hate your fellow American. Maybe your fellow human. That's the context for Jesus in Luke's gospel, at least. But here it's anybody in the nation Not just your immediate clan or family You shall not hate them But what's the expectation? The the expectation is you will go And have a rational and reasonable conversation With that person and work it out (laughs) Oh gosh that's. I mean mean, When was the last time you had a conflict And you said You know if I just go talk to so and so I bet we can work this out in ten minutes would not that be great? And the, I mean, the last 20 conflicts you've had, what—how many of those are you confident, or did you just go work it out? And it just just talk rationally with each other. Four? Right? See, some people looking at their girlfriend and boyfriend. That's funny. <laughs> how about this one? 19. Now, th- we could bring this one back into style. Rise in the presence of the aged, show respect for the elderly, and reverence your God. I am the Lord." How about that one? How how are we doing in reverencing those who built the places we live, laid the foundations for our technology, built the intellectual structure of the technologies and the services and the businesses and the places that we have, took care of the things that we use, gave of their money, time, energy, bore us out of their own bodies— watched us squander what they gave us to a certain extent, loved us through it, and now we won't stand up when they walk in the room. We won't go over and talk to them because they're not as interesting as our friends that are our age. We won't listen to them because we know that because they're old, their views must, must be totally irrelevant. But way back in this terrifyingly morally inappropriate primitive culture, it was stated when old people walk in the room, you stand up and you reverence them and you respect them and you treat them with dignity because they've given their whole life to build the culture you enjoy, even if you want to change it. I'm not sure about the primitivism of the Torah. But one of the things I think is important to recognize is all of these claims about human dignity that are made in Leviticus and the rest of the Torah are all rooted in one thing, and it's actually just God saying this, I'm the Lord. And there's one word that conceptually holds that together, and it's the word holy, right? I'm the Lord. I'm—you should be holy because I'm holy. That's what he says, right? If you go on, there's a number of places in the book of Leviticus where this—this this comes up. There's a number of them. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy— I am the Lord who makes you holy. Therefore, consecrate yourselves and be holy. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. Right? There's this idea, he says, he says you have to be holy. That is, you need to, to the extent possible, make the proper distinctions in life live with moral truth and seek to do it with the strength necessary to live that way, you need to mirror that in me because that's true about me. The fact that God just is that thing is a sufficient reason, and because he enforces what he is, is sufficient reason that we would do it. Now let me ask you this. If you went out in our culture and you asked anybody who was part of any religion or no religion, you said, do you believe in the fundamental dignity of human beings? That human beings have an essential dignity to them? What percentage of people do you think would say, absolutely? A high number, Right? 85, 95% 85, 95% would say, absolutely, I believe in the inherent dignity of human beings. And my response to that would be, show me how that is not a philosophy with its feet planted in midair. What is that actually built on? What is the foundation of the belief that human beings have inherent fundamental dignity? Because here the argument is, because God exists— And God has an inherent fundamental dignity he calls holiness He talks to the humans he's created in his own image And says every one of them shares that fundamental dignity to a certain extent And therefore must be treated in accordance with it Or he will do something about it Now you may not like that foundation But it's a foundation And I don't know of another very good one Because even if you say, well, what's wrong with doing others, you know, Jesus said that. I mean, why can't we do with the categorical imperative thing where, you know, don't do to somebody else. You know, do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. Well, that's great until one group of people has more power than the other. I don't know if you recognize, the reason why truth is so important is because when truth is gone, all there is is power. You might think living in a world without truth or without the recognition of truth, a fully— A fully relative modern world in which we don't talk about truths that must not be violated. You might—that may sound like a world where you can do whatever you want, and that may sound fabulous, but when truth goes away and we can't have a rational argument where if I if I win the argument and you're persuaded what I say is true you know you're morally bound to live in accordance with it. When that goes away all that's left is whose gun is the bigger caliber. And the whole history of the world demonstrates that. It's really hard to get this across Especially in parenting One of the things that happened at the Gibson house um, About a couple weeks ago Is my um, My mom Said that Well, I'll just tell you the story What happened is my kids um, They just, you know they're, my, my two oldest girls they're, they're, they're girls And my, particularly my second one Is kind of a clothes horse She just really likes clothes and trying on different clothes And so she loves trying on everybody's shoes And so um, she, uh, she, she got a pair of my mom's shoes on And she walked around in her, in her um, garage And then out into the driveway And then took them off And then my other younger daughter put them on And walked in them to the sandbox And then left them there for about a month And um, it turns out these are my mom's Like one of her favorite shoes And she was really upset by it And you know, parent, sometimes parenting's hard because how do you get across To kid, to a couple of a Eight-year-old and ten-year-old So they're, they're well old enough to know better, right? Like there's no like, oh, they're eight and ten Yeah, they're eight, they're eight and ten, right? They know better They should know better than to destroy somebody else's Personal property, right? And that if you're doing something that could, you ought not do it And if you don't have permission, you can't do something And they didn't, and they knew it, right? How do you get across To kids this concept of profaneness in a culture that doesn't support it. Right? I mean, think about it. In our culture, it's pretty standard for anybody whenever they want to use profanity. Right? That is, there was a set of words at one point where we would say, these words are not sacred enough. They're, they're fundamentally unclean in a way that we refer to them as profanity. Therefore, they ought not to be used. There's a classification of words that ought not to be used. Right? What, what are we down to in radio and TV download? Like three or four of them? I mean, I think when I was in college, there were nine. Right? There's, there's only nine words you can't say. Right? I mean, it's not exactly a culture that upholds the idea of dignity in relationship to profanity. Yet, I have to somehow convey to my children the moral seriousness of destroying somebody else's personal property. Even if it's through your own negligence. Even if you didn't want to do it. And— the unrepairability, the irreparableness of damage um, My, my, my poor wife um, is, is sometimes, I shouldn't say often um, Just, I mean, just really not comfortable with, with some of the parenting actions that I take And sometimes she's right Sometimes she's right Just yesterday I had to apologize for something, sort of um, But <laughs> But, um but several months ago now, I guess it was more than a year ago now, um, one of the farmers in our church, Charlie Pierce, brought over to, to our house 40 eggs, and we were going to incubate them and like, turn them into chicks. Well, s- you know, stand by while they become chicks. And then give them back to him. he take them to the farm. But he needs somebody to do that. Because incubating, you got to do something every day, and he just knew he'd forget. So, and we were like, oh, this will be great for the kids to learn about science and— how—where food comes from, and what really isn't an egg, and all that kind of—we thought it'd be great. So we get through, and it's like a 40-day gig, and we're like on day 31. And you know what? You, you've got to look at them. You've got to turn them, and then you've got to— you know, if the, the, if the humidity's too low, you've got to spritz them a little bit, but not too much. And so there's some care that has to be done. Well, I was somewhere else in the house. I was in the laundry room, and Rachel, my eight-year-old, and Jude, my five-year-old, um— took the top off of the incubator and they were doing something with one of the eggs and they cracked the top of it off. So I'm in the laundry room and they come in and they've got this egg and the top is off and you can see the chicken side moving around, gasping for breath. Right? And Jude hands it to me and says, Daddy, fix it. Right? And I thought, what an awesome parenting opportunity. Because I took it and I said, kids, I want you to look at that chick. Look at it. It's going to die because of what you did. (laughs) Right? (laughs) What? (laughs) Bunch of parental pansies. (laughs) I said, look. And I said, listen, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. And And I said, look at me right in the eye. I said, listen, There are some things in life That when you destroy them They cannot be fixed And sometimes they can't even be redeemed They are totally broken, lost, they're dead This chick is going to die And there's nothing we can do about it Because you are careless Right? Now whatever you think about that parenting model (laughs) I don't repent of it at all Because I would rather my kid cry Which they get over at that age very quickly And children are not nearly as psychologically fragile as we think they are I would rather get across in living color a reality that they need to learn sooner rather than later The world is full of things we can never fix Constantly, tons of things in our life The best you can do is partly redeem them There is an unsalvageability To so many of our actions And yet we live in a world in which We think that if God is infinitely powerful That surely he's infinitely flexible And so nothing is profane And he's infinite Everything's infinitely fixable Because he has all the power So there can't be anything profane And there can't be anything unsalvageable And the book of Leviticus stands as a witness To all of us That There are many things in life Namely Us That can engage in a kind of profanity Toward God Almighty That is unsalvageable Because Of an attribute of God We call Because he called it holiness So for a few minutes I want us to think about this idea That perhaps I would say probably The most common human problem Is that when it relates to God we have no idea who we're dealing with Or you could say it this way We have a fatal conceit of presumption about divine flexibility And Leviticus says As starkly as possible That is absolutely false Though we constantly live under that presumption Let me read you a passage from it The first, um, the first eight chapters of Leviticus Um, are the laws, are the sacrifices, and the priesthood. I will get back to those on my next preaching outing. And so you go through the burnt offering and the the fellowship offering and the guilt offering, a number of those offerings, and then there's the priesthood, and then the priests are consecrated, and they get together. All of Israel gathers, and the priests do the sacrifices for the first time. So Aaron and his sons get up, and they do the sacrifices, and here's what it says. He, Aaron, slaughtered the ox and the ram and the fellowship offering for the people, He and his sons handed him the blood And he sprinkled it against the altar on all sides But the fat portions of the ox and the ram The fat tail, the the layer of fat The kidneys and the covering of the liver He laid these upon the breast of the animal And then Aaron burned the fat on the altar Aaron waved the breast and the right thigh before the Lord As a wave offering as Moses commanded The important thing about those verses is that If you had read the preceding nine chapters He did it exactly the way God told him to do it Verse 22, Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Right? The the sin offering, that is, to atone for our sins before God. The burnt offering, which is an offering to God because of his glorious nature. And the fellowship offering, that is, the recognition that we all have a relationship. God is related to his people, and his people are divinely related to each other through him right the perfect community god is god we are made right with god and we are all in fellowship with each other right moses and aaron went then went into the tent of meeting when they came out they blessed the people and the glory of the lord appeared to all the people fire came out from the presence of the lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar and when all the people saw it here's how they reacted they shouted for joy And they fell face down. Now that's a a really good story, right? Here's what happens right after that. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them—a censer is a bowl— put fire in them and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. Notice that is contrasting as Moses commanded in verse 21. Right? So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is the key verse in the whole passage. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. Holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. Moses summoned Mishael and Elzaphan, sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Come here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came and carried them, still in their tunics, outside the camp as Moses ordered. Then Moses said to Aaron, and his sons, Eliezer and Ithamar. Do not let your hair become unkept and do not tear your clothes or you will die and the Lord will be angry with the whole community. But your relatives and all the house of Israel may mourn for those the Lord has destroyed by fire. Because, see, the priests had just been consecrated. And, by, because, and part of their consecration was they had to stay in the temple courts for a week. And God's holiness and his dictation of them staying there could not be violated even for them to mourn for their own children their brothers and his own son. And the sons who had died could not stay there because Leviticus had claimed all dead bodies are by definition unclean and must be outside the camp. So it says right after that, do not leave the entrance of the tent of meeting or you will die because the Lord's anointing oil is on you. So they did as Moses said, and then the Lord said to Aaron, the Lord said to Aaron, so... There was a key verse when Moses said something to Aaron. This is one of the only times the Lord said something to Aaron directly. You and your sons are not to drink wine or fermented drink when you go to the tent of meeting or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Now verse 10. Listen to verse 10. You must distinguish between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean, and you must teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has commanded Moses. Let me get back to that verse in just a second. So there's a couple of things that we need to talk about in relationship to this. The first, the first thing that the whole book of Leviticus teaches us about God's holiness is that mistaking, mistaking in our minds what God's holiness is, is humanity's biggest and most common mistake. If there is a default psychological mistake human beings make in relationship to God, if Leviticus is right, it's about God's holiness and who the heck we're really dealing with. When you look at the story of Israel, holiness is one of the first things God is constantly revealing about himself. The first thing God says to Moses is, Take off your sandals. The place you're standing is holy ground. Then one of the first things God teaches his people after they become his people. So while he's pulling them out of Egypt, he's revealing that he cares about them, that he's reaching out to them, that he's their liberator. But the minute they cross the threshold of becoming his people— And he refers to it as a holy nation, my people. The minute they become his, the minute they become holy, he reveals himself as holy, and that becomes a theme for the next three books. Why? Because people don't believe it. You tell people God is love, and they act like you just, you know, said that red is red. You say that God cares about you. You say most things about God, and they'll accept. When you say God is holy, they'll either look at you confused, or they'll say, oh, how can you really believe that? This, this idea of the holiness of God is simply the most misunderstood conception about God in relationship to the whole human race. And I'm not talking about non-Christians right now. I'm talking about all humans. R.C. Sproul said in one of his talks on holiness, throughout the Bible, the holier the person, the more terrified they are at the sudden presence of God. One of the things that you could imagine is you could say, okay, Nick, this is kind of a weird passage because— You know, there are people in the Bible who like they kill people or they rape somebody or like, and then even after the people become God's holy people Israel, I mean, there's all kinds of, surely there are worse sins being committed among a group of a million people than that a guy because God showed up probably in some sense out of worship, takes a bowl, puts coals in it, puts incense on it, and offers it to God. I mean, that's that's I mean, that's not a big deal. I mean, that's (laughs) That's probably not the worst thing happening at that moment among the Jews, right? So why do both of them get burned to death by the consuming fire of God? And one of the things we need to think about as we think about what, why does God's wrath break out against some people and not out others? And oftentimes it seems disproportionate to how serious the sin is. And I think one of the things that we need to recognize—and I think this will be better if you were to go through one by one, and I'm not going to do that this morning—is that all—because all sin is idolatry. The sin in Scripture that raised God's most immediate wrath are not the ones that we would consider the greatest moral crimes, but they are the ones that were the most immediately and obviously idolatry. They were the ones that most directly sought to shrink God. D.A. Carson says it this way. The heart of all evil is idolatry itself, the de-godding of God. It is the creature swinging his puny fist in the face of his maker and saying, in effect, if you don't see things my way, I'll make my own gods and I'll be my own God. Small wonder that the sin most frequently to rouse God's wrath is not murder, say, or pillaging, or any other horizontal barbarism. It's idolatry, that which seeks to dethrone God. And that is also why, in every sin, it is God who is the most offended party. Um, there's a, a little book called God's War by a guy named Kyle Adelman, and um, he's a pastor of a church, and a mom came to him and said, um, Pastor Kyle, um, my daughter, um, you know, sh- she, she has a boyfriend, and they're going to move in with each other, and I don't approve of it, and would you go talk to her? To which he goes, sounds like fun, right? Um, so he calls her up, and they, they get together, and he says, um, so, you know, your mom talked to me about— says you, you're moving in with your boyfriend. Um, and she—you she, know, they talk back and forth about it. And finally, they get to the point where she expressed the moral philosophy of the age, which is, she said, Pastor Kyle, I mean, aren't you really just making a big deal out of nothing? Right? And if I was going to summarize in one sentence— the moral philosophy of our age I'd say that'd be pretty good That's a pretty good summary What's the big deal? Right? If you want to affirm any moral truth You have to overcome the objection What's the big deal? So she, you know, so she said, um, aren't you just making a big deal out of nothing? And, parent, and his response was It's possible, it's possible I'm making a big deal out of nothing He said, but honestly, how do you know You're not making nothing out of a big deal? Which I thought was very clever Who gets to decide what's a big deal and what isn't a big deal? See, the book of Leviticus, it's not the first book, but it's one of the earliest places and in the most stark sense, God claims for himself the right to decide and tell us what's a big deal. And one of the ways he talks about that is this this verse in 10.10, where he's talking to Aaron, whose sons he's just killed— who he's not going to get to mourn for. And in that state of mind, God added the commandment, by the way, you can't drink and come be a priest. And then he says, now here's what you need to realize. You have to distinguish. You need to make distinctions in your life between what's holy and common, between what's unclean and clean. And as you read through the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus is all about those concepts. What What is holy and sacred and not holy and common. Those are different. And then what is clean and what is unclean? Those are different. And he said, you have to make the right distinctions in life, and you have to teach Israel to make those distinctions, because everything in life is distinct. Right? Conceptually, it goes like this. There's—most things in life are clean in the book of Leviticus. Among clean things, there are some things that are designated as holy. They're both clean and sacred. And then there are some things that are unclean and some things that are clean if something happens to them They can become unclean like a person and then cleansing can happen where they can become clean again And what makes things unclean is not some obvious thing in relationship to immorality There's all kinds of things. Disease can make you unclean. Deformity can make you unclean um, Sex can make you unclean. Death can make you unclean All that stuff can make you unclean And you can also be cleansed in most cases. But, he, but these are major distinctions to God. And when God says to Aaron, listen, you've got to make these distinctions, I think that's very relevant when we talk about our disconnect with the concept of holiness because one of the things that legitimizes idolatrous human beings to not understand who they're dealing with and do whatever they want is breaking down distinctions— That's how you morally legitimize what you want to do. You make it like something else that nobody can object to. Right? So, okay, I don't—I don't know, and I don't really care what you think about the Supreme Court case um, on defense of marriage this week. But basically, what's the argument culturally? The argument is the people that are for the defense of marriage say there is a distinction between a couple of opposite genders and a couple of same genders. Those are different things. That's a legitimate distinction, right? That's the claim of that law, right? the majority in the Supreme Court said what? That distinction is logically illegitimate. There's no—there's not a sufficient fundamental difference between those two to have different categories for them. That distinction can't happen. Now, whether or not in this case the distinction was illegitimate, I think the distinction is—I'll just tell you, I think the distinction is perfectly legitimate. But whatever you think of that, you ask yourself this week or this last month, What did you justify for yourself because you delegitimized a distinction with something else that was morally okay to give you the right to do what you wanted to? Well, what really is the difference between a married couple and a couple that loves each other and are committed to each other? What's the difference? Really? There's no real distinction between those two. So why not have sex with my boyfriend or my girlfriend? Right? What's the difference between money that I should be allotting to God and money that I don't? It's all my money. I could give it all to God. I could give none of it to God. I just happen to not give any of it to God, right? Or, you know, I, I talk to other people that way. Why can't I talk to my wife that way? I should get some respect. Or, there's lots of people at work that don't work hard. Why should I work hard? That's not stealing because the boss knows it happens and he lets it go, so why can't I do it? There are piles and piles of ways we will take our hat and umbrella and we'll go to a meeting and we'll argue about some distinction somebody else made or some lack of distinction somebody broke down and go, oh, that's so wrong. The, the, The nice progressives will go to their little blue meetings and they'll say, oh, these distinctions these bad people are trying to build. They're all so wrong. And the Republicans will all go to their meeting, or conservatives will be like, oh, look at all the distinctions they're bringing down. They're so wrong. And then what do we do? We walk out hypocritically and say, if it suits me, I'll make the distinction. If it doesn't suit me, I'll knock down the distinction. And mainly in this context, what God is saying is the more dangerous approach in certain ways is destroying distinctions. Because when you knock down the distinctions that God makes, it allows you to do whatever you want. But what God is saying all through the Torah is he's saying, to me, everything is distinguished. Nothing's the same. Everything has its purpose in place. Everything has its reason. Everything. You aren't whatever you want you to be. Pragmatism is false, according to Leviticus. He's saying—he's saying sex isn't whatever you want it to be. You aren't whatever you want it to be. Your work isn't whatever you want it to be. Your brain isn't for whatever you want it to be for. Your money isn't for whatever you want it to be for. Your time, your sleep, your children, your spouse— none of that is for whatever—your you, car, your belt, your aglet. None of that—all that stuff is something. And it has some, in, something inherently defined by God. And you either accept the distinction or you don't. And God is a distinguisher. And our unwillingness to accept the the, the distinctions God makes is a telltale sign of the default place of the human heart that says, I will not, I will not submit to this. And I will not accept it. Let's move on So you might say, okay Nick You're talking a lot about holiness, you better define it And so here's my Here's my shot at a definition Holiness is the Sacred dignity of God Produced by the confluence of his Sacred separateness, his moral Perfection, and his divine transcendence It is the Sacred dignity of God produced by the Confluence of his sacred separateness, his Moral perfection, his divine transcendence In Leviticus, God claims the absolute right and commitment of himself to the fact fact of his own identity. God is completely committed to reality. Okay? He's completely committed to reality. You should not try to put peer pressure on him to deny reality. And reality is, is that he has absolute sacred separateness. Absolute moral perfection and absolute divine transcendence. And even if you think your heart is right and you just decide you're gonna bowl You're gonna burn a little bowl of incense before him To demonstrate to him that you can come to him the way you want to I wouldn't. That's all I'm saying One of the things though that is that is important to recognize about holiness So many Christians go out and they talk about the holiness of God as though it's fundamentally bad news Right. So here's here's how how many of us share the gospel So God exists, and he's holy. And he—because he's holy, he hates sin. And we're people, and we're made in God's image, so we're important, but we are also sinners. And so God, because of his holiness, he judges our sin. And so God gave us atonement through a Savior, Jesus, and if we participate in that atoning sacrifice—also Leviticus, right?—we can be forgiven, and we can belong to God, and we can have a relationship with God forever and go to heaven, right? Which means God's love is the good news, and God's holiness is the bad news. Totally false. Totally false. Confluences are dangerous, but they're also a lot of fun. When I was—I had to—okay, I'm in my upper 30s now, because I turned 36 this last week. And so, in my old age, I had to—one thing that I had to give up was whitewater kayaking. But when I was 20, I led whitewater kayaking trips. And paddling down a nice little stream is—it's nice. It's, it's, it's fun. But there's nothing like Confluence. There's nothing where, like, where two or three rivers come together and they just bust it up. That is the most dangerous and the most fun. And you see, God's holiness is the amping up to the God-sized proportion of all of God's attributes. Without it, there is nothing for you to enjoy forever. What do you think you're going to be enjoying eternity from now? You're going to be enjoying God's holiness. Right? And so, let's look at these three things really fast. One is his divine separateness. Now, obviously, separateness, that's not enough because quarantined people are separate, right? There is a sacredness to God's separateness that builds distinctions into reality. God is not like us in many ways. And we need to realize that though we bear God's image and there are image-based similarities and parallels between us which give us our dignity, God is also fundamentally unlike us. There's, in, modern, in the modern world, most people are dramatically committed to the, to the concept of God's immanence. God is right here. I feel his presence. Let's sing a song about feeling God's presence even though none of us do. And let's pretend like all Christianity is is feeling God even though we almost never do. And let's pretend like that's not the most— painful thing about human existence is the elusiveness of feeling God. Right? For most Christians throughout most of Christian history admitted that the most painful thing about human life, if you believed in God, was that he wasn't more palpably present more. It's only in this age, the psychological age, where there's some kind of skill of tramping up some psychological sense of some other in our head so that we can feel God with us all the time. And I'm not against um, seeking the presence of God. I think it's very worthwhile. I think we should do it all the time. And most of the time, it's going to rely on faith. We're going to have to believe that God is transcendently aware and looking over us in care through his providence and will oftentimes answer us through other means he chooses as indirect so that he fosters faith. But One of the things that people are not deeply committed to is the supreme otherness of God, his transcendence. He's not like you. He's not like me. He doesn't think like me. He doesn't think like you. And that's one of the reasons you would have never come up with Jesus. You would have never thought Jesus up. It says that at least two places in the Bible. It says it in the Old Testament in Isaiah 55. You know that place, that verse you love to quote that says, for no, I, or no, that's a different verse, where it says, as my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, so are my ways higher than your ways, declares the Lord. And then it goes on, as the heavens are higher than the earth, and remember that verse? Read just before it. Just before it is grace. That through faith, people don't get what they deserve. How does chapter 55 start? Come, you who have no money— Come, buy, and eat. Bread without cost. And then it goes into the gospel. People getting what they don't deserve at the cost of God. And then it says, because my ways are higher than your ways, you would never have thought this up. It's not not just a general statement about God being higher than us. It specifically relates to how God saves, delivers, and redeems human beings. He says, you would have never thought that up. If we were thinking up a salvation, most of us would— if you were God, I would probably not get saved— Because what you would have thought up with, I would never have been able to live up to. There's this enormous blessing to the supreme separateness of God, which does not destroy, as most modern people want it to, the idea that we can say things about God. Because the minute God steps into human history and reveals, that presumes we can say and know something about God. Not exhaustively, but Really? I don't have to know everything there is about my car to turn the key and drive it. And I don't have to know everything about my wife's physiology to love her. And there are innumerable things about God we don't understand. And it's one of the reasons why revelation is such a grace. Because the God we could never completely understand condescended that we could have the joy of understanding as much as we could. I don't even think in eternity we'll know everything there is to know about God. But I think we're going to know a lot more. The second part of holiness is his moral perfection. Some people think that's all there is to holiness, but it's not. That's divine righteousness, which is part of God's holiness. His holiness amps it up, but God's sternness to sin comes out of his righteousness and his justice. That's not what holiness means, but part of what holiness is, is an absolute separateness in the area of moral perfection. So when Isaiah says, you know, so God shows up in the temple and there are angels flying around saying the only attribute of God said three times for emphasis in the whole Bible. Holy, holy, holy. The seraphim, which as far as we can tell from scripture, exist as angels to praise God. They have not one set of wings, they have three. Three. <laughs> With one wing set of wings they fly— With one set of wings, they cover their feet, their createdness. And with one set of wings, they cover their eyes out of reverence. These are not sinful beings, are they? These are not sinful beings. These are the angels that delight in worship, and they cover their face and their feet out of reverence for the one they praise. And, and, what is, and what does Isaiah say when he realizes that this God is present? He says, woe is me. And why? Because he's small? Because he's created? No, because he's wicked, he says. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And now my eyes have seen the Lord. It's God's moral perfection. But also, it's what—and this is hard for us. Because it's God's divine majesty. Now, we don't have kings, right? Like, who has divine majesty to us? Right? The only person I've ever heard a Madisonian talk about with any sense of majesty is the Dalai Lama. Man, Madisonians love that guy. They just think, I, I don't know, they just think he's great. I've never met him, so I'm not going to say anything about it. Or maybe, you know, when Steve Jobs was alive, people would have treated him with like reverence or something. Um, but I remember when I was at a church, and a, a younger person— was—who was not dressed as, much, as well as the older person would have liked, was they were—they were talking about dress, and the, the, uh, the, the older person said, you know, um, you know, why don't you just dress nice for church? And the younger person was like, well, because this is how I dress. And he's like, well, um, you know, what would you wear if you're going to go see the president? You know where this is going, right? Right? God's more important than the president, so if you dress nice to see the president, you ought to dress nice for church, right? Which is not terrible logic, right? And so the guy goes, I would wear this. He's like, you wear that to see the president. He's like, Who's the president? Right? I mean, that's—that's that's not a, thats not that uncommon a thought. I mean, outside the military, most people are like, who's that guy? Who's he to tell me? What's the— mm? We have no sense of divine majesty. There's nobody that's so far above us that we go, whoa. And so to communicate this is incredibly difficult. But why is Isaiah so terrified? Like, if there was some guy who was separate in his lifestyle— Morally perfect, but you could beat up really easily. Would you be terrified if he showed up? Probably not. Right? He's like, hey. He's like, I might be scrawny, but you're doing the wrong thing. You just punch him. Right? But the thing is, is that it's God's divine majesty. And so Isaiah was like, I'm toast. I'm dead. I'm gone. There's, my whole life is taken apart. I'm he says, I'm undone. I'm unknotted. And then he finds out God wants to redeem him, not kill him. And he wants to redeem all these people of unclean lips. But he doesn't say, oh, don't worry about it, Isaiah. What does he do? One of the angels goes to the fire and takes out a coal and burns his face. Like, we just read over that. Because, well, apparently Isaiah could talk, so his lips must have not been too swelled. But it says, the angel flies to the fire, takes a coal, And puts it on his lips Which And then he says, now you're okay Your sin has been atoned for Thank you (laughs) I won't need Botox, you know what I mean? Like (laughs) Because the holy God Neither says It's okay Nor you're dead What that means is That Every attribute of God. The reason holiness comes in at the center is that every attribute of God becomes what it is through holiness. It comes through this confluence of three pieces and it comes through and it fires through these three pushes. It's like a kayak coming down the confluence of three rivers. So what does it mean that God is good? Well, God's goodness connected to his complete separateness and proper distinction, his moral perfection, and his divine majesty Blasts forward what goodness looks like He is good like this And he's righteous like that And he's loving like that And he's long-suffering like that And he's compassionate like that And he punishes sin like that Everything that can be said about God That's why you could sing forever Holy, holy, holy Is the Lord God Almighty Over and over and over again Because it would get at everything And all Not understanding that, not accepting it, and not caring about it is the default of every human heart, and it is the greatest tragedy of existence. And one of the saddest things about that is that God's holiness ought to be good news. God's holiness caused these people, when they saw it, to fall down on their face. They did fall down on their face because they were terrified by it. But the emotion it stated explicitly that they were having was joy. When they saw God who had responded to their sin offering, they were right with Him. He'd responded to their burnt offering, their declaration of His divine majesty, and He'd responded to their fellowship offering, that they really were one people together and He was their God. And as the fire came out and consumed the offering, that is demonstrating its acceptance. What does that point to in the New Testament? The resurrection. What is God's acceptance of the cross? That he raised Jesus from the dead. It, the Bible does not say Jesus raised Jesus from the dead. It doesn't say that. It says God raised Jesus from the dead. That is, the Father looked at the sacrifice of the Son, and the fire of his acceptance came out and raised him from the dead. It was a demonstration of his acceptance of it. And so when God's fire comes out from the opening of the Ten of meeting, out from his presence and consumes the sacrifices, I accept this. Which terrifies them Because it's fire But they're full of joy Because the God of divine majesty Of perfect distinction And of moral perfection Is their God Is their God And all through Scripture it keeps saying Over and over again Therefore I mean we don't use these words but ascribe to the lord say that this belongs to the lord the glory do his name worship the lord in the splendor of his holiness do you worship how, why do you worship God? Do you worship God be, just because he loves you? Because he's nice to you? Because he's going to help you? Because you're sure your life is surely going to turn out the way you want it to? Because you're going to get better from that disease? Because your kids are going to turn out right? Is that is that why you worship God? Or do you worship God in the splendor of his holiness? Do you love that about God? Because that's what the psalmist loved about God. worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Do you see, he didn't think that that was psychological craziness. He didn't think that that was some kind of Freudian, like, Victorian repressiveness, that you would be terrified and full of joy at the same time. He called that being human and knowing what God is. That was what it would do in you. You would worship with joy the splendor of God's holiness, and you would be terrified in all the earth. And the thing that makes this good news is that there is a sacrifice once for all on that altar. That the God of perfect distinction, of absolute moral purity, and of divine majesty, there was a sacrifice that he didn't just dictate, but he himself provided. That he laid on the altar that was dear to him, and then he demonstrated his acceptance of him by raising him from the dead. Jesus. And it is offered to you so that you forever could fall down before this God of divine, splendorous holiness and be full of joy because he has made you holy so that the one who said, be holy because I am holy provided the holiness that he demanded in his son. It says it this way in Hebrews 10, 11 to 14 in the New Testament. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when this high priest, Jesus, offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, himself, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I j- thank you for the patience of your people. I pray that you would take something of what I said that is approximately right and that you'd press it into the hearts of everyone present. Pray that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit on us right now and that you would affect us. Help us to learn from Aaron's sons. Help us to learn from the sacrifice that you accepted Help us to recognize the splendor of your holiness. Help us to want to declare it and not to be ashamed of it. Help it to cause us to make the proper distinctions in our life that liberate us from the stupidity of our so-what mentality about what's good and right and true and beautiful and wise. Help us to see you as you are, enjoy you as you are, follow as you are. And to follow you as you have called us to. And to speak about you as you have asked us to to treat you as you should be treated and therefore to treat the blind and the deaf and the poor and the rich and our fellow countrymen that we would slander all the way they should be because you are the Lord and we're to be holy because you are holy. Pray in Jesus' name.